Well, it's good to be back in Michigan. I've been gone for so long that uh, sometimes I forget this is my home state. But after uh, going to the South Bend Airport and coming up here last night and seeing all the snow, all of the memories of childhood came back. And, uh, you know, you guys have a blessing living up here because there's a lot of people that live in cold country that quit exercising in the winter. But you guys can't get out of your house unless you exercise in the winter. And uh, we experienced uh, that this morning, uh, shoveling off the, uh, the driveway. Uh, uh, actually, um, it was the, the owners of the house that were getting the exercise. <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, it did give back uh, some uh, tremendous uh, memories of invigoration. You know, there's something invigorating about snow and cold. And uh, my father used to tell me there's no such thing as uh, bad weather in Michigan, just bad clothing. And so uh, if you get on the proper clothes, you can do uh, anything up here uh, in the winter. Uh, It also is a reminder of uh, where I did my pre-medical education um, here at Andrews University. And uh, those were uh, special uh, years. And uh, also, uh, being here this morning, I'm seeing I'm also among friends. You know, uh, Paul uh, Conniff, why don't you uh, stand up? Paul is one of our spiritual counselors in our depression and anxiety recovery program. And he has recently uh, moved to this area and doing some adjunct teaching and doing a lot of counseling. Uh, By the way, Paul, uh, the last program we did together... Uh, we do uh, a number of programs at Weimar, but some away from Weimar, and he was the spiritual counselor in our November program. Um, we, you might be interested um, that the girl, in fact, she's, she's telling her story publicly now, probably writing a book about it. Uh, she's um, wanting to do that, but in the November uh, program, this was a girl, severe depression, uh, young mother, did not want to live, felt totally worthless due to a lot of abuse and trauma and other things in her life. And, you know, when they come to our depression and anxiety recovery program, they can't be actively suicidal. Now, they can have suicidal thoughts. In fact, most of them do. In that program, I think 14 of them had suicidal thoughts out of the 20 um, that were in that program and some of them on a regular daily basis. And she admitted to that, but she did not admit that she was actively suicidal. She's apologized um, since that time. But on day number three, without um, uh, any provocation, it's just that um, our director, Linda, um, was um, checking on something with her in her room, and Linda's not even sure why she was doing it. It wasn't that she was late for any appointments or anything. But she knocked on the door and uh, came into the room when she was in the process of trying to uh, set up a hanging device to hang herself um, in that room um, in Georgia. And uh, I think, Paul, you took it on yourself to counsel with her pretty much every day, but this girl is completely transformed. Uh, The nutritional... Uh, benefits the the things that we found with her methylation status and then primarily once we start fixing the biochemistry then we have to get into the thoughts and uh, Paul helped tremendously um, with that and I think she's going to be telling the story at the EQ Summit uh, in February and I want to thank you for your role in transforming this woman into a wonderful uh, energetic mother now and also a wonderful wife that has a sense of purpose and is really going to do wonderful things with her life. Uh, I also uh, noticed that um, we have some students uh, from Weimar Institute uh, that have transferred over to Andrews. I think I saw Maddie uh, Wilcox um, earlier today. And then another connection with Weimar uh, is um, Ruthie uh, Mills-Reeves, her um, father is the chairman of the board at Weimar, and uh, he and I have had a a special time um, with uh, Weimar. By the way, Weimar, uh, you know, for years was threatening on 
closing, it seems, every year. It just, you know, how in the world could this institution last? And um, the, the Lord has resurrected Weimar, and now we have a new problem. We are out of space. No more space for students, no more space for teachers or faculty, no more space even for our new start guests and depression recovery guests. The place is completely maxed out, and so we're having to build uh, and um, uh, build new housing units, and we need to build new dorms, and we need to build a new lifestyle center. Uh, but the uh, Lord is tremendously um, blessing at Weimar, and our young people are being set up to be true medical missionaries to give this loud cry through the world and also help people with mental health. In fact, our, um, our third-party evaluators that came in uh, uh, actually in regards to the accreditation aspect of things um, we're, we were notified that uh, unless the WASC Commission doesn't agree with all the site visitors that came in that uh, Weimar will have the full accreditation equivalent to Stanford and those places in February um, but uh, one of the things that we were told is that our students are number one in the nation in being able to solve real-world complex problems and uh, that's what we're called to do in life is to be able to solve problems and when we can solve real world complex problems it does put us on the forefront of being able to change the world um, for the better uh, i also noticed wanda swenson here uh, i just noticed her in the back i don't know if uh, dr Fiditas is here uh, or not okay he's probably doing some other uh, presentations but let's get into our message today god's love and emotional intelligence. Uh, the Bible, um, by the way, speaking of emotional intelligence, uh, mental illness is at an all-time high in our country. Anyone want to guess what percent of college students today have a diagnosable mental disorder? According to Dr. Barrison at Harvard, who he is the head of Young Healthy Minds, he's looked at it from the nation, over 60% of college students today have a diagnosable mental illness. That's way off the charts. It was 5% when I was here. It was kind of unusual for that to happen. And now it's the majority. The number one reason why college presidents lose sleep throughout this nation is no longer diversity like it was a few years ago. It is the mental health of their students underachievement and all sorts of mental health issues are pervasive and it's not only among our young people mental illness is off the charts in all of the age group all of the age groups have had an increase marked increase in mental illness now mental illness includes depression anxiety it also includes addiction disorders do we have more addictions than ever before absolutely it includes um, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the substance abuse, attention deficit, um, learning disabilities. And when you add all of those things up, we are at a crisis that a lot of people are completely ignoring in this country. But emotional intelligence can be improved upon and mental illness can be eradicated. Uh, just like the girl that we talked about, severe mental illness, it's eradicated, it's gone. And God's love has a role to play in emotional intelligence. Now, who does the Bible tell us God is? God is what? He's love. It's not just what he does, it's who he is. This is his character. The transcript of his character, of love, is actually his law, according to the scriptures. Psalms 1 that was just quoted from talks about the law. says, his delight is in the what? Law of the Lord. And in his law doth he what? Meditate day and night. To meditate upon the law is something that is healthy for us to do and you know speaking of Weimar Institute one of the reasons why Weimar turned around 
Ruthie's dad, when he became chairman of the board, became very interested in changing the way boards function and turned it into a board called a policy governance board. We've added some board members since that time and they kind of have a little confusion on policy governance. The board enacts policies and the managers of the institution, uh, with myself being president, we manage the institution through those policies. And so there's a marked differentiation. The board does not manage the institution. But interestingly, I can, as president of Weimar, I can do anything I want to do in furthering the message of Weimar without even checking with the board as long as I'm following their policies. And those policies have a lot of thou shalt nots in them. And, you know, when the new board members come in, they look at this, all these thou shalt nots for Dr. Nedley, you know, are, this is kind of negative, you know, shouldn't we be a little more positive? Now, there are a few positive things in there as well. But, you know, every time the board enacts a thou shalt not, I realize there's a reason why they're doing that. There's an overarching reason. And if I don't understand the reason, I might get caught into the negatives. But understanding the reason empowers our leadership and our institution to actually be far more free than what we would be otherwise. And it allows us to do executive actions that we would not be able to do nimbly and correctly if the board had to oversee everything that we're doing. And you know, God, uh, some people have talked about the law of God in negative terms. You know, there's all these negatives. You know, I think if he would have given it to us today, to our educated, enlightened society, he would have not used those type of words. You know, he would have used something more positive. But let me remind you of something. This is the only portion of Scripture that God wrote himself. Everything else he entrusted to prophets. He enlightened them, inspired them, and they wrote it in their own words. But the law of God, he did not entrust to any prophet. He wrote it himself. And what did he write it in? He wrote it in stone because these are timeless principles that will last for eternity. Now, emotional intelligence, just a little bit of background, it's our ability to understand our emotions and the emotions of others and respond to those emotions in a healthy way. Today you're going to see God's love through his law documented through science actually dramatically improves emotional intelligence. There are five components of it. Knowing our emotions. That means being able to identify our emotions, not only what we're feeling, but why we're feeling that way. What we call self-awareness, by the way, in our program. Paul and our, and our cognitive behavioral therapist spend a lot of time on number one, knowing our emotions. Number two, managing our emotions. People with low emotional intelligence are simply managed by their emotions. That's where there's 60% or even more of those college students are. They're being managed by their emotions. People with high emotional intelligence still have powerful emotions, but they're managing those emotions, distinctly different. And this has something to do with what Dr. William Baumeister at Stanford University, who's now the most quoted researcher in all the world, tells us is the number one problem in all the world. And that is lack of self-control. We can't have self-control unless we're able to manage our emotions. And lack of self-control is the number one cause of heart disease. It's the number one cause of cancer. It's the number one cause of all sorts of problems. Financial failure, um, you know, you name it. Lack of self-control is a major player in the problems of our Western civilized world. Recognizing emotions in others is also an a, an important part of emotional intelligence. Managing relationships with others uh, is a critical part as well. It's why this has so much to do with our happiness is because our relationships, healthy relationships, are very much connected 
with the psychological good life and then motivating ourselves to achieve our goals. In the word emotion is another word, motion. If our emotions are based on what's true and accurate, it will powerfully motivate us to achieve our goals. So it turns out these five components, when we take a look at them, there are things that we can do and different ways that we can think that can dramatically improve our emotional intelligence. Now, secular science in the, in the psychological world has revealed to us that there are 10 different cognitive distortions. These are things that any human being, including myself, can think that in a distorted way. On the, on the surface, the thoughts appear rational and valid, but when we investigate them, we find out they're just plain wrong and that twisted thinking is a major cause of suffering. And so there are 10 different ways that humanity can get into twisted thinking. And that's part of what we teach uh, people, particularly the cognitive behavioral therapists in our program. And these distortions cause emotional turmoil, and then later on they will cause behavioral turmoil. Whenever we have emotional turmoil, we normally are going to follow it up with behavioral turmoil. And it turns out the ten laws that God wrote with his own finger in stone, the secular scientists haven't told us this yet. They're not connecting the dots, but they could if they actually looked at the evidence that we're going to look at today. These ten laws are actually the solution to the ten cognitive distortions that cause the emotional problems in our world today. These laws, as you'll find out today, pertain to emotional health. So this morning, for the morning service, we're going to go over the first four laws. And for the late morning service, we're going to go over the next six laws. And we're going to also see what science shows us. What is the first commandment? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now, if we're going to meditate on this, and this is what I'm going to ask you to do, meditate upon this law, what's the principle behind it? This is what the policy governance model would call an executive limitation, if they put it on there. In other words, as an executive of Weimar, I am limited by this law, if that were a law in, in the Weimar policy governance model. And that's what the Lord wants us to do. He wants us, he wants us to be executives. That's why he gave us all frontal lobes. But he wants us to have those executive limitations to trust him in these limited ways because it's going to be for our own good. What I did with each of these commandments and you might choose different words, but to make it simple, I thought, let's boil it down to one word. What is the one word principle that this commandment is illustrating? Anyone want to, want to try to take a stab at it? Meditate upon it? What's the one word principle you would choose in regards to why this commandment is there? The one word principle I chose was priority. God wants us to have our priorities straight. Now the world tells us what our priority should be. In fact, speaking of Stanford, if you were to go to Stanford, they would say, watch out for number one. Who's number one? Self is number one. But God tells us that our priorities actually should be God instead of self. Now what this does is it avoids a very cognitive, a common cognitive distortion called magnification and minimization. This is when we begin to major in minors and minor in majors. And this will manifest itself with emotional problems and mental health issues. Obsessive compulsive disorder, by the way, is something where an individual will have this cognitive distortion in a primary way. They will be majoring in things that are of lesser importance. And then things that have, are great importance, they will totally ignore. Now, some of the things that they're majoring in are important at times. But when we start majoring in minors and minoring in majors, we're going to have significant issues. 
and magnification of self has been shown, documented, to be a major problem that will lead to mental illness. In fact, there's a, um, one of the books that we assign people to read in our program is called Telling Yourself the Truth by a great clinical psychologist from Minnesota, William Backus. But he's also written another book called What Your Counselor Never Told You. And the subtitle of it is The Seven Sins That Lead to Mental Illness. And the first sin that he mentions is the sin of pride. This is when you are magnifying yourself. And, you know, there's been a lot of people that have run into problems with this, even in the Bible, and had emotional problems. Saul had a problem with magnifying himself and ran into significant emotional problems. Is not this great Babylon which I have built? Who stated that? Nebuchadnezzar, did he have emotional problems? Severe emotional problems, anxiety, sleeplessness, all sorts of issues. And by the way, it took more than a 10-day program for him to get over his problems. (laughs) But the principles that were used in that program are used in our 10-day program. The first thing God did was put him on a plant-based vegetarian diet. He had to be put on an exercise program. No food for you unless you exercise, Nebuchadnezzar. His sleep-wake cycles had to be normalized with the light and the darkness. But what finally helped him was the cognitive behavioral therapy of getting rid of his distorted thoughts about himself. I will exalt myself above the Most High. Who was that? You know, these cognitive distortions go back in times when actually the biochemistry was perfect. Sometimes we overemphasize biochemistry of the brain. It is critically important, but you can have completely normal biochemistry and get into distorted ways of thinking. William Backus actually gives you a little test to see whether you might have pride in your life. Trying to be noticed, craving attention, itching for compliments, needing to be important, detesting the idea of being submissive, loathing the idea of admitting to wrongdoing, strongly opinionated, being argumentative, demanding your way, wanting control over others, flaunting your individual rights, refusing advice, being critical, yet resenting any criticism coming your way, being oversensitive, and finally, thinking you have excellences you actually don't even have. (laughs) William Backus says, watch out, you have one or more than one of those. Pride is there, and wounded pride is coming your way. And you're going to have significant emotional distress. In contrast, we have Christ. One of the great biographies of him, Desire of Ages, says Christ was never elated by applause. Why was he never elated by applause? He never allowed himself to develop an arrogant sense of self. Maybe of all people he should have been allowed. After all, he was creator of the world. But he not only said the words, he lived the words, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Notice the phrase goes on. He was not only never elated by applause, he was not dejected by what? Censure or disappointment. This is where many people plunge in their mental health. When they have censure or disappointment coming their way, they plunge down to depths that actually make them think of ending their own life or how they would be better off dead or then lashing out at others. But by the way, these two are connected. You know, interestingly, one of the primary symptoms of severe depression is called feelings of worthlessness. But feelings of worthlessness actually always start with first an arrogant sense of self that gets shattered. 
if we didn't have the arrogancy and the selfishness, we wouldn't actually go down the path of being dejected by censure or disappointment and feeling worthless. And so even though a lot of traumas came Christ's way, he didn't get dejected by it. In fact, even when he's being totally abused from every way that abuse can come on the cross, he still is looking out for the good of others and trying to save a soul that was next to him on another cross. Amid the greatest opposition and the most cruel treatment, he was what? Still of good courage. This is what can happen when we prioritize God instead of prioritizing self. Interestingly, scientific research, this is the American Medical Association now. They publish a monthly journal, Psychiatry. It's a great journal. And it shows scientific research shows a strong relationship between what? Regular church attendance and higher life satisfaction, stronger marriages, and higher ratings of general health status. You know, interestingly, you would think with evidence like this that church attendance would be skyrocketing in America. But instead, it's steadily declining. People are not living lives based on evidence. There is a correlation between low church attendance and depression among young people over the last 15 years. And the study showed suicide rates are half among church attenders. Now let me ask you something. As a physician, if I had a patient who had suicidal thoughts and there were drugs available to me that if I prescribed them, they could significantly decrease their suicidal thoughts or there were evidence that would actually decrease the risk of suicide, do you think it would be malpractice for me not to offer those drugs to those patients? It would be verifiably malpractice. In fact, if I did not offer those drugs, I would have to have all sorts of evidence as to why they didn't take the drug, what side of, you know, were there some sort of side effects that made me prevent it? I'd have to have all sorts of documentation. But let me tell you something. When a patient comes that is seriously thinking about suicide and psychiatrists and psychologists don't tell them about this study, there is no malpractice at all. We've got a problem. And the problem is we're not basing our medical practices and traditional practice on truth and evidence. It is selective truth and selective evidence that's going forward. But really, every patient should be told this. Now, in our program, we start normally on a Thursday. The first weekend with the intensity of the mental illness and also the resistance that many have to the spiritual aspect of things. We have treated many agnostics, many atheists, many people that might have been a believer but are no longer a believer and those sorts of things. We don't go into that aspect. They're actually keeping a Sabbath. They don't recognize it per se. Uh, but the next week, we give them this information and we tell them we're modeling here everything that's going to help mental health. And so tomorrow, we're all going to go to church. And we want you to have this be part of your regular life. And here's one of the evidences. By the way, this isn't just the only study. There are over a thousand studies. Oxford has compiled them into a book showing that when we prioritize God, we tend to have our other priorities straight. We also tend to have higher comprehensive self-control. And church attendance has been shown to be associated with not only improved emotional intelligence, but improved longevity and an increase in quality of life. Increased intrinsic religiosity. This is what we call where you're not only attending, but you're actually engaging in the beliefs is associated with less depression and more rapid remission from depression. Priority. Are your priorities straight?
the second commandment. Here it is. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. What is the, what's the principle on this one? Why did God have this be a limitation? He's asking all of humanity to not make unto thee any graven image, but not, this isn't just about graven images, it's about any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. What would be the one word principle you would make for this? I put genuine. The reason why God doesn't want us to be into images is he likes the genuine. And you know, one of the questions I might ask you is, what is your image? For many of you, I bet it wouldn't take me long to find images of yourself. We go to Facebook or social media, we'd probably see a number of images. And the question is, is it genuine? You know, uh, a few months ago, I was speaking in New Zealand. And, uh, you know, your uh, elder asked me if I had ever been north of the Mackinac Bridge or across the bridge, and I did have to tell him no. Uh, but uh, in, uh, how many of you have been to New Zealand in this audience? Okay, more than you might think. New Zealand, particularly the South Island, is probably one of, one of the most beautiful places on planet Earth. And between speaking appointments, uh, the people that invited me had arranged for me to see probably one of the most beautiful places on the South Island. It's called Milford Sound. We took a little airplane across these beautiful mountain ranges and then flew into this coastal portion by a fjord or a sound. And I was... Uh, then taken to a boat and taken out into this fjord. Dolphins are, are uh, you know, just leaping and having a good time in front of this boat. And there's beautiful 5,000-foot peaks and cliffs all around with waterfalls going directly into the ocean. And it's, it's like a rainforest, but that day there was sun. And there was beauty all around. And, you know, we talk about dopamine. These are natural ways to get your dopamine levels up. And uh, your dopamine levels come up to this high, and they'll stay up there for a long time. It's not like the addictions where there's a surge, and then it shuts off and goes down even less than it was before we had whatever it is that's producing that dopamine high. And, but there was two people that were significantly blocking that dopamine level from going up to the degree that it should have. They were arguing at the front of the boat rather vehemently. And it's like, we're in this beautiful surrounding. Can't you do this some other place, you know? And they're doing it in, in, in public. And then as they, we got close to a waterfall and people were ready to take pictures, they quit arguing. They smiled really big and they put this took this selfie of themselves when their arm around each other and then as soon as the selfie was done they went back to arguing again <laughs> now that image that they sent to all of their friends on Instagram to make them jealous of where they were at and everyone's thinking I'm slaving away at work and those two are having such a great time that was not a genuine image that was a false image and, you know, people project all sorts of things that they want to about themselves up there. But social media is often not genuine. People are often trying to portray themselves as something that they're not. And God wants us to be genuine. This is one of the reasons why studies have shown the more we look at images, the less happy we become. Well documented. More social media, less happiness. More flipping through images. You know, people are attracted to social media because at first they think they're going to connect. But studies show they quit. They don't connect very much. 
They primarily compare. And when they're comparing themselves among themselves with all of these false images where they're actually believing that picture that was just taken, they even feel worse. Gene Twenge, this is a study of over a million young people in Southern California. Life satisfaction, self-worth, happiness of young people in the U.S. plummeted after 2012, the year when the proportion of Americans owning a smartphone rose by over 50%. And what happened with that? More images. More looking at images. More posting of images. The happiest young people were those who used digital media a little less than what? An hour a day. After a daily hour of screen time, levels of unhappiness rose steadily. Real life experiences, however, are associated with emotional fulfillment. And if you can be yourself with the self-control that comes from following God's will for your life, there's every reason to be genuine and transparent. And when you are genuine and transparent, you're going to be generally very well-liked. And God also does not want to be worshipped in regards to images. He wants to be worshipped for his genuineness and who he really is. Being genuine and searching for the genuine combats a common cognitive distortion called mental filters. And when we're looking at Facebook and social media, you need to understand there's a lot of mental filters that are coming your way. The third commandment. Thou shalt... Well, no, that's not the third commandment. I'm sorry, that was the furthering of the second commandment. What is the third commandment? I don't think I may have it up here. Third commandment, I do have the principle there, but it's thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. If we look at the principle behind taking the name of the Lord thy God in vain is God wants us to have a sense of reverence and awe. Being filled with awe about God. The Bible tells us the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. And you know, a lot of people say, you know, I, ha I do have a problem with selfishness. How do I get rid of that selfishness? One of the best ways is to recognize the awesomeness of our Creator God and the awesomeness of His depths of love. And when we understand this, it's going to affect our speech. It's going to make our speech more accurate and helpful and pleasant and kind. When I was growing up, I was taught this, those who curse have a limited vocabulary. That was my father as an engineer. And you know, it's very true. But one of the reasons why it's so limited is they're way off the charts as far as describing things accurately. It's like, what? It's not even close to that. <laughs> but yet, it's all sorts of, of distorted thinking that has you go to those extreme ends in utilizing those types of words. And that's because we don't have a sense of the reverence and awesomeness of God. I've also noted that those who curse others will be cursed of others. Just ask Donald Trump in the media who continue to curse each other and continue to limit their influence. Being filled with reverence avoids another common cognitive distortion called mislabeling. When we're violating the third commandment, we are mislabeling. And mislabeling, we can mislabel ourselves, we can mislabel others, we can mislabel even definitions. Those sorts of things stem because we're not having that principle of reverence and awesomeness of God. The last commandment, and I need to um, hurry through this, that we're going to do today, on the or the, uh, this morning, we are going to do the final six later on, is a commandment that begins with what? Remember, it's not a thou shalt not, but there are executive limitations in it. Remember the Sabbath day to what? Keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor, do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. And then it gives some of the limitations. Thou shalt not do any work. And then he talks about what we should do on resting the seventh day and 
the Lord bless, will bless it and hallow it. What would be the one word principle you'd use for this one? This is the one word that I use that's actually in the commandment. All the others I chose a different one, but it was repeated many times in this commandment. And the fourth commandment principle actually is about being holy. Holy means sanctified, set apart, as we were asked to do with this time. And you know, there have been some studies done on this in the last few years. I wouldn't have been able to um, show you this um, 15 years ago. But uh, how many of you have heard of Dan Buettner? A few hands. Dan Buettner is known as the person who came up with what kind of zones? The blue zones. He was looking for the longest living, living people on planet Earth. And he found three different areas where there were the longest living people. And one of them was Seventh-day Adventists in California. And then he compared all of the groups. And he said there's principles there. Plant-based diet is there with all of them. Exercise is there with all of them. Family is there with all of them. But he said there's one group that they're not only living longer, their offspring are living longer than they are. And all the other groups, the longevity is going down, but this group, the longevity is not going down. And he said, I wonder if one of the differences on this group, it's never been studied, is the fact that they have a Sabbath. Now, it hadn't been studied, but as a result of raising the question, researchers in Loma Linda, where this blue zone was centered, began to research it. And in order to research something, you first have to define it. And so looking at Sabbath keeping, which is what he was asking to be researched, it was negatively defined. That means you were keeping the Sabbath if you were not shopping, not reading secular magazines, not watching or listening to news or sports programs, not attending secular concerts or theatrical events, not working, and not engaging in commercial activities. And so if these things were being kept, then that was a Sabbath, particularly Friday night, sundown to Sabbath evening sundown. Now, in order to study something well, you need a control group. And so the authors of this study came up with a couple of control groups. And in fact, the second control group they came up with, first it was those that don't keep any day at all, but then they were interested, Sabbath keeping versus Sunday keeping. By the way, are there more Sabbath keepers or Sunday keepers? In this country, there's actually more Sabbath keepers. Now there's more people who worship on Sunday, but notice what Sabbath keeping or Sunday keeping might be. Very few actually of Sunday worshipers keep the day holy. And so, but he, he came up with enough of them to make a control group. And then he, he studied them and it was kind of interesting. Not he, there was several um, analysts uh, in this study. You can see the reference there. But they found a significant correlation between what? Sabbath keeping and what type of health? Mental health. In fact, they were pretty amazed at it. They said, you know, Sabbath keepers can have bad things happen. They can go through divorces. They can go through trauma. They can get fired. They can go through financial failure. But when they're keeping the Sabbath, they seem to be able to live emotionally above the fray. Far more than those who do not keep the Sabbath. They went on to say greater Sabbath keeping was associated with more religious coping, more religious support, healthy diet, and more exercise, which in turn was associated with better mental health. But then they said something rather profound when they looked at their statistics. And this is why we've even changed our program to allow people to see this the last weekend of the program. Pairwise comparison showed that both religious coping and religious support each had a significantly greater effect than what? Diet or exercise on mental health. Now we know diet and exercise, the studies are very clear. You're going to see more evidence of this this afternoon. There's some tremendous things that have been done in the nutritional literature to look at diet and uh, 
getting rid of mental illness as well as diet and improving IQ and EQ. And exercise, of course, can do the same thing. But there was one thing that actually was even better than diet and exercise, and it was Sabbath-keeping. Avoidance of non-Sabbath activities, performance of spiritual activities, and performance of communal Sabbath activities. So it was looking at different things that they do, which is what you're doing here, a communal Sabbath activity, were all independently associated with improved mental health. Keeping the Sabbath out of social pressure, duty shame avoidance, performance of secular activities on the Sabbath, or electively thinking that helping people by working for them without pay on the Sabbath is okay, like painting their house, were all independently associated with an actual decrease in mental health. So it's not just that we're keeping it, but why we're keeping it. If it's duty, shame, avoidance, or we're not really keeping it well, it turns out it decreases the mental health. But you know, we shouldn't have been surprised about this, because what did Christ say about the Sabbath? The Sabbath was what? It was made for man. In other words, this day was made for us to benefit from it in all of these ways that have now been shown to help us significantly with our emotional intelligence. But yet, many Christians miss out on this great weekly opportunity because they think that if they do this, it's going to get in the way of their own personal happiness. And so, well, God wants me to be happy, so he can't really want me to do this. That's called a cognitive distortion. Secular science has shown it's a very serious cognitive distortion, and it's one called disqualifying the positive. We totally look at one side, and then we look at maybe the benefits of the other side, and then we totally discount it. But the studies show if we would trust God and not disqualify the positive, we would all be significantly better off even with the trauma and abuse in this world. So this morning at this section, you have seen evidence that God is trustworthy. And you know, right before the commandments were spoken, God said this. He says, I am the Lord who brought you out of bondage. Do you think God is still in that business today? He is wanting to bring anyone who is in bondage out of bondage. Why not respond to him who wants to provide healing and hope? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. Let's stand together and respond by singing hymn 579, Tis Love That Makes Us Happy.
After the benediction, we will transition to our Sabbath schools. If you have children here today, our Sabbath schools are downstairs. We have Sabbath schools throughout this church. If you're visiting today, Sanctuary Sabbath School would probably be a good one to join. Our second service begins at 1120. Uh, We still do have a van that is much in the way of traffic. It has a, a veteran's license plate on it. If you give us your keys, we'd be happy to move it for you. But there will be more traffic in here, and we do need to get that van moved. So please come to us. If you have a red van with a Navy veteran's license plate, we'd be happy to move that for you. Dr. Nedley will have our benediction. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love. And we thank you so much for giving us the transcript of your love, your law. We have learned today that this law was given for our benefit, for our emotional and physical and spiritual well-being, that we might better participate and express that love in our life. And so, Lord, we pray that we might learn to trust you. Even secular science has now revealed to us how trustworthy you are in the principles of your law. And may we commit to opening our heart to your love. And may that be shown forth in our life every day. In Jesus' name, amen.